Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. It is so good to worship with you all tonight. Um, thanks for if, if you're new, I want to especially say thank you for joining us. My name is Bill Rydell. I'm one of the pastors here as well. We're going to pray and jump right into our text. Father, thanks for the chance to be together tonight, to be able to worship together, to have a place where we can do this and see each other and hear each other's voices, lift our voices to you, hear your word, and come before you in prayer. Tonight, we pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would give us direction for our lives from what we have to read about, about who Jesus is and about what he calls us to. So we lift this time to you in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, we are in the Gospel of John in a series together. We're in John chapter 13 tonight, so if you have a Bible, the end of chapter 13 into 14, if you have a Bible, you can open it up there or pull up an app on your device, um, and um, we'll settle in there tonight as we continue to walk our way through John. We're in a section that's called the Farewell Discourse, where Jesus had washed his disciples' feet, they had dinner together, Judas left the room, and then they, he continued to teach and to talk to his 11 disciples who remained there with him. And so that's what we'll continue on with tonight. And tonight, as we get into the text, there's um, this clear theme that emerges that Jesus is calling his disciples, talking about a place that he's going to and talking about how they can get to that place with him. And so that's the, a big theme, which is, is helpful to us because for many of us, that's something that, that we struggle with in our lives. Is what is God calling me to? What is the pathway of my life going to be like? And some of us have, have better or worse results at discerning what those pathways are. Um, this summer, my family got to take a sabbatical break and, um, and we had a great time together. But if you ask my kids, one of the most memorable points of the entire three months off that I was granted in our travels that we did was a hike that we did. Um, it ended up being way more intense than we expected. We, we ended up, it was, it's, it's a hike called the Path of the Gods in Italy. And so if you haven't done it, um, go with more water than we did. And, <laughs> and don't go maybe in July. It was like 100 degrees and you're like 17 to 1900 feet above the sea, but on the stunning views over terraced vineyards and down these cliffs. I mean, it was absolutely gorgeous and absolutely destroyed all of us on the, on the way through it. I mean, there was one point on the pathway where there, I mean, there were several points. If you've gone hiking or you enjoy hiking, then you, you've experienced this before where it's not always terribly clear where the trail is. And unless you're on like some paved walkway that used to be a rail line or something, but, but if you go to a, a trail in the woods, it's not always clear. So there were a couple of points where we had to make decisions. Some of them were pretty obvious. It was like, oh, that one goes up to somebody's house, so we're not going to go 
that way. But there was one spot where we had to make a decision, and one of the routes went down some stairs, and the other one kind of went this way to the right. And so I, as a man, decided I don't need to ask or look for any hints of directions, and just confidently led my family on the path to the right. As we got into it, my family and my kids kept asking me, like, are you sure this is the path? I was like, yeah. <laughs> like I'd been there before. <laughs> Eventually, we got to a point, probably 15 to 20 minutes into this branch of the Path of the Gods, that we could see the actual trail about 50 yards below us. <laughs> um, but at that point, it was like, are we going to turn back? No. No, we pressed on. <laughs> and as I expected, we rejoined the path a little ways ahead and had just gotten a more scenic look <laughs> along the way. But our lives can feel like that sometimes. There's times when we make choices and we find ourselves looking around and looking over to another place and going, man, if I would have chosen that path, if I would have gone that way, my life would feel and look very different right now. And, and how do we discern the way that we go? And so that's some of what we're going to look into today. One of the primary calls that Jesus has for his disciples is when he calls, he calls them throughout the Gospels, to, and he says, follow me. And that extends to us today, to a call to follow Jesus, and trusting that the word of God and the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And so life can feel like a many-forked path. And Jesus said, that, said in another place that the way, of, way to destruction is broad and easy, but that it is a narrow path that leads to life in him. This is what we're going to read about, that Jesus knows the way, that he is the way. And so again, in context, we're in the farewell discourse, we'll begin reading in verse 36, Jesus and his disciples hanging around at the table after dinner, after a, a feast, the Passover feast of food and drink, and this is what he says, or what it says. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you, or would I have told you to go, that I go to a fair place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, where, where, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
So Jesus here makes a pretty audacious claim. He says, when, when his disciples are confused, and I love this because we're getting other voices into the mix on this, is John was at this meal, and he is, he's remembering how the conversation and flow went. And so Peter jumps in first, as he usually does in the Gospels. But we also get input from Thomas. We get Philip stepping in. And, and the whole thing that they're pressing toward is, is like, this is not making sense to them. They're wondering, like, Jesus, what does all this mean? Where are you going? What is... What is happening? But at the center of it all is John 14, 6. Like, this is the, the, the verse within this passage that shapes all of it. As Jesus makes the claim, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so what we see in today's text, the big idea is that Jesus is the way. And there's four truths that I hope we can cling to tonight. First is that Jesus is worth following. And Jesus is worth following. And so Peter, you have to love Peter on this, and I, lo- I love Peter in many places in the Gospels because Peter speaks up a lot, and I, I don't think that he was the only one that was thinking this. I think he probably just jumped into it before the other 11 could respond. Um, but Jesus had just said, if you remember, that he had just given him a major commandment that we looked at last week, the mark of what it meant to be his follower. And it says, in, right before this passage that we read, it says, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, now I, now I, or so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so Jesus had just said that, and you've got to love that Peter here is like, okay, God's glory, that's fine. You're telling us this like, commandment that how are people going to know that we're your followers? Well, because of our love for each other, like this is the greatest commandment you're giving us and leaving us with. But what Peter clings to is not the glory of God or Jesus' command to him and the others. What Peter jumps on is like, wait, hold on a second. You're going where? Jesus, did you just slip that in and expect us not to hear it? So Peter jumps in and says, it says like, this is, where, where are you going? And again, I think he was probably just vocalizing what the other disciples were feeling. Because right after this, we hear from Peter, we hear from Thomas, we hear, we hear from Philip, and then even later on, in a passage we'll get to next week, we hear from Judas, not that Judas. <laughs> Which I feel for that guy, right? Because this is a guy named Judas who is a disciple of Jesus, and even in the passage in verse 22, John says, Judas, not Iscariot. <laughs> like, this poor guy had to identify himself that way the rest of his life. Hey, I'm not, not that Judas, I, but my name is Judas. <laughs> And so, but, but we hear, hear these disciples jumping in and, and confused and asking Jesus, but his, their questions are helpful to us because I think they're the questions that we would ask. And so it shows us that Jesus is, is embracing them and helping them and teaching them. And, and, and along the way, that's a massive benefit to us. Because if we were in that room, reclining at the table with Jesus, enjoying as he was the master of the feast, and he had washed our feet, and then he said the same thing. I think we would be struck the same way. Like, wait a second, here you go. where are you going? And so Peter here jumps in. Where are you going? And Jesus says to him, uh, he repeats exactly what he had said earlier. Well, where I'm going, you can't follow me right now, but you will afterward. And so Peter, can't follow you. 
I'll die for you. And you gotta love Jesus' response. Really? Peter, you gonna, will you die for me? Because before morning comes, you'll have denied me three times. Jesus is worth following, though. I think the reality here is that Peter's self-assessment far outruns his strength. It's a lot easier for him to be really bold in this locked room after a good feast with his friends than it was just a little while later when they were in a garden on a mountainside confronted by an armed guard with torches. And, and I think for many of us, it would be too. Theologian Don Carson says that all four Gospels report Peter's protestation of, of willingness to die. Tragically, the boast that he would never deny his Lord, even to the point of death, displays not only a gross ignorance of human weaknesses, but a certain haughty independence that is the seed of the, of the denial itself. You hear that? That's, that's us. Like, we get convinced of our own strength. We get convinced of our own moral stands. We get convinced of our commitment to things and commitment in spiritual life and commitment for Christians, commitment to Christ. We get to a point where we feel like it is unwavering and we are in all the way. I will die for this. But that kind of confidence displays an ignorance of human weakness and a level of independence on God in those claims that set us up for a fall. And he goes on, Carson went on, that these words in the context, it's rich in irony. Lest the irony be missed, they, they, repeat, they are repeated in Jesus answering the rhetorical question, will you really lay down your life for me? Who, after all, is laying down his life for whom? You see, Jesus is worth following because he doesn't abandon Peter. He doesn't hang Peter out to dry. He's, he actually continues to call him to himself, and he knew what was going to happen. See, Jesus doesn't call us to anything that he hasn't done himself. Now, he is our substitute before he's our example. So we need to understand that like, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died in our place for our sin and that his glory is in the cross. And by humbling himself to the point of death on a cross, God has glorified him in, in so, that, so that at the name of Jesus, every, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that to the glory of God the Father. And so we, we know that about Christ, but we need to cling to that and then also hear that when he calls us to follow him, it is a costly call. Luke captures it this way, that Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And so what is the cost to follow Jesus? Lose your life. Now, Jesus isn't calling us to suicide. This isn't Gnostic, like we need to escape the physical in order to join him in the spiritual. But what Jesus is calling us to is to give ourselves up, to live self-sacrificially and trust ourselves to God in Christ that our lives and our paths can be directed by him that his way is the best way. And that means we lay down some of our priorities and some of our desires and, and submit them all, all of our ambitions to Jesus. And we will mess this up just like Peter did. There will be times that we are completely overconfident in our assessment of our own strength and boldness. But Jesus is faithful to us even when we are faithless. 
in, one of the, in the early days of Redemption Hill, several years ago, we had a man that, that was coming to our church. He was a friend of, I think, a friend of one of our members. But he was, uh, it was here in the United States on asylum because he came from a Muslim country, had converted to Christianity, and had multiple death threats against him for his conversion. And so he found himself in our church. He spoke Eng good English, and he was able to engage with us really easily and quickly. And after coming to our church for a little bit of time, a month or two, and I'd talked to him several times after services, there was one service that, that during the closing worship that we have, the big block of music at the end of our services, um, he came up to me and pulled me aside and said, can we talk? And I can remember, it was right down here to the right. That he, he pulled me aside and was, he was just weeping, and, and he was terrified that he had, in his words, committed the unforgivable sin. He had read Jesus' words that if anybody is ashamed of me, then I will be ashamed of him. And he told me a story that night that after he had converted to Christianity, he decided to follow Jesus in his life, that he was held at gunpoint, not just like a figurative, if you held a gun to my head, this is what I would say, like literally he was made to kneel down and held at gunpoint and demanded to recant, to, to swear off Christianity and, and, and regain and reclaim that he was a Muslim again. And in that moment, he did. And then he escaped the country and landed here in D.C. So he was terrified and, think, and came to me weeping, saying, I, can, I cannot be with Christ. I've denied him. I didn't stand. I was ashamed of him. And I forgive, I've committed the unforgivable sin. Well, first of all, that's not a, con a conversation I've had a number of times in my life. So immediately I was praying. But then as we talked, I, I thought about Peter. There's not a lot that's listed in all four Gospels. But all four Gospels list this conversation. All four Gospels tell us how confident Peter was in saying, saying, I, I will go with you to death. I will die for you, Jesus. And Jesus saying, ah, will you? Because by the time the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. All four Gospels talk about Peter's denial. We read about, about the moment that the rooster crowed, that Jesus' eyes met Peter's, and he went out and wept bitterly. And then John shows us his reinstatement as Jesus in restoration at the end of this gospel, and we'll get there in chapter 21. But this is Peter. The, his nickname literally means rock, and Jesus called him that and said, on you, Peter, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. He was, he was a key leader in the early church and stood up as, as, a, as an authority even among the apostles. And still... Jesus restored him. When he went out and wept bitterly, it was not because Jesus was condemning him, but because Jesus was calling him to himself. And so it, this, this, to this man, I, I prayed over him and tried to encourage him that, that if Peter can deny Christ and then still come to a point where he believes in and lives into the restoration Jesus gives him more than he lives into his failures, then we can definitely mess this up and trust that Jesus is faithful to us even when we are faithless. 
That as we read at the beginning of chapter 13, they came together and, and the hour had come for Jesus to depart out of this world to the Father. So that's where he's going. And it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus is worth following because he gave himself up for us and has made a way for us. A second truth for us tonight is that Jesus is preparing a place for us. And I love this. He goes on then. He goes, okay, he can tell, you can almost like feel what happened in the room here. Peter was already somebody that was in a, kind of in the leadership. You, this happens in groups of people, right? If you're in a group of people, there, there are people that will naturally emerge as, as leaders within a group. And so Peter, along the way, had this role within the disciples. And so Jesus just said, hey, this guy that I told you all was going to be the rock on whom I built my church is going to totally bail on me tonight. You can almost feel that like Judas has just left and Jesus said to him, go and what you're going to do, do quickly. And John told us like nobody at the table got what he was saying. They thought maybe he was saying go and give money to the poor because that would happen in the middle of the night. <laughs> and so here too, you can almost feel that Jesus, he, he like reads the room and goes, okay, let, don't, don't be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled in this. There's two calls then. Believe in God and believe also in me. He says, trust God, trust me. And he goes on to this description. In my father's house, there's many rooms. And if it wasn't so, I would, have, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come, out, I will come again and will take you to myself and where, that where I am, you may be also. And you know where I'm going. And so Jesus says, this is why he's going. He's departing to the, to the father with the explicit purpose to prepare a place that, think about this, and it's a, it's a dwelling place, it's a place for us to live. This language that is used here is only used in two places in the entire New Testament. Both are in this chapter. Here where Jesus says he's preparing a place for us to dwell, and then in verse 23 when Jesus says that the Spirit of God will dwell in us. And so with this, I think this gives us a portrait of eternity, that that gives us a taste of what eternity is like. Now, there's been some confusion along the way with Christians on some of these things, and so I don't know if you've ever heard people use the language of like, I can't wait to get my mansion in heaven. It actually comes from this passage, because the Greek word here, monet, was translated into Latin as mansiones, and then that was translated by the King James Version as mansions. So if you read the King James Version, it will say here that he, Jesus is going to prepare, prepare mansions for us. Um, that would be cool. <laughs> but I think it's better understood as a place in his father's house, that there was a house that he's describing. And so it's talking about a place within that that he's going to prepare for us. Um, <laughs> I've heard somebody say, and I... Uh, yeah, I'm already in it. Um, I'm, not a, I'm not a literalist on a six-day creation. If you are, that's fine. I'm not personally, but I have heard somebody say, and it's nice to think about, you know, if God created this place in six days and Jesus has been preparing the place for us for 2,000 years, can you imagine the greater value of what he's preparing for us? <laughs> there are going to be new heavens and new earth. There will be a, a restoration of what this place is supposed to be. And that's what all of, all of human history points toward. There's a, a, an old piece of 90s Christian culture that some of you might remember that, uh, by a band named Audio Adrenaline. Oh, yeah. See, some of you are already singing it in your heads already, weren't you? Yeah. 
Others of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's fine. God bless you. There's an error that you missed out on. It's not a big deal. But as they sang, there's, it's it, it, as cheesy as I think the song is and as overplayed as it was, there's some truth here. Because they sing, it's a big, big house with lots and lots of room, a big, big table with lots and lots of food, a big, big yard where we can play football, and a big, big house, it's my father's house. Now, I don't know about the football part, I'm hopeful. (laughs) Um, Because I would love to play that game again without rebuilt ankles. Um, But... This is what the rest of the description here of God, this is the description out of John 14 of this big house with all these rooms in it that have rooms for all of us to come together as brothers and sisters in the household of God. It's described as the wedding feast of the Lamb, so a big table with lots and lots of food that is the best we have ever experienced, the, the finest of meats and the choicest of wines, and it's going to be a place where we live in God's presence forever. This, this is what John later sees. He captures a vision of in Revelation chapter 21 when he says, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heavens and earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear away from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he said, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The dwelling place of God is with us. This is literally what happened. John details in chapter 1 is he begins his gospel by saying, Jesus is the incarnate God. God who has taken on flesh, who tabernacled with us and made his dwelling place with us. And through him we have seen the glory of the one and only. But the point of this is not the grandeur of our personal mansions, it's not how fancy our apartments are or whether they're en suite. It is not our individual preferences and desires as if what God is going to do is say, is say, dream up your best and I'm going to give that to you. He's got something far better for us. Um, I, I had a grandma. I've, I've done funerals for three of my four grandparents. I, the other one died before I was a pastor. Um, but one of my grandmas who I did the funeral for, they were, there was a lot of conversation at her funeral that she had this recurring dream that she would tell her kids about and, and the grandkids about, like it was just something that was a recurring dream for her, that she had this dream of this massive house and that in the house with all these rooms and places, it would just go on and on and on and, and that all of her family was there. And so she would go and she would have these dreams and have this like warm feeling where she'd see relatives who had gone on and were with Jesus and others that were, were, that were in her life. And so as, as she got older, the dream became more regular and she had that dream just before she died. And one of my aunts said at the funeral, she said, yeah, she told me and you were there. And I was like, no, <laughs> it's not my time yet. But there's something beautiful about Grandma Nancy's dreams. It reflects something of the truth of what we're reading in John chapter 14, of this this place where we're all gathered together as one family. 
And the point here is that there's more than enough space for all who follow Jesus to, to join him in his father's home. And he is calling all of us to these two commands, trust God and trust in me. And how, does he, how did he prepare a place for us? Well, that's what's clear in this gospel, that the way he prepared this place for us is by going to his death on the cross, that that is the glory of Jesus, is his death on the cross, and his victorious resurrection seals it for us because it shows us that he has power over death. And so this is what we read, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is an entire chapter on the resurrection and what the resurrection means for us. In one place it says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man death came, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. And so we won't be able to miss this the second time around when Jesus comes and takes us to the place he's prepared. He says, no, when I, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. This is the truth we can cling to, that Jesus is worth following and that he's preparing a place for us. Third, Jesus is the way to the Father's house. Which again, I love this, that he says, okay, and, and you, know the way where, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas jumps in there and he's like, hold on. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How are we supposed to know the way? I love Thomas. I think Thomas gets a bad rap. Because we have a nickname for him, don't we? Yeah. Doubting Thomas. The poor guy, for 2,000 years, people have called him Doubting Thomas. We've never even met the guy. <laughs> but it's because when Jesus had risen from the dead, Thomas wasn't there when he had first revealed himself to some of the disciples. And he said, listen, I can't believe this unless I see him and I'm able to put my fingers in the holes in his hands. And so, so Thomas there, it's taken often as like, a, ah, Thomas, can't you just believe in this? But I actually think there's something good from Thomas because it shows us that he believed in the necessity of the physicality of the resurrection of Jesus, and he wanted to experience it for himself to come to a point of full belief. And so there's something good there. And so before we jump too hard on Thomas, like realize here too, they don't know where Jesus is going and they, because they haven't caught on to what he's saying. And Jesus has said these same things to people that were in the temple courts and around, that he had taught these things already, but the disciples somehow had missed that as well, and so now he's extending it to them, and they're like, well, wait, now you're leaving us too? And they hear Peter's faith is about to fail, and if he, his is shattered, what's going to happen to theirs? And Jesus is giving them the final instruction and commandment to love one another, and, and so they, I think it's reasonable that they're freaked out here. And Jesus said, like, believe or trust in God, believe and trust also in me, but Jesus knows here that he is headed toward his arrest and suffering and death. He had told the disciples over and over of that, especially in Luke's gospel. It's explicit the way he told the disciples, and they still didn't understand it. And we're at a point, the night of those events beginning, where Jesus could have used the emotional support of his friends. Remember, he's fully man as well as fully God. He could, but, but even in the midst of his own grief, when we read about him going to Gethsemane and being so anxious about what he was about to go through that he was, he was sweating like drops of blood as he prayed and was pleading with Peter and James and John, like, can you please just stay awake with me? And they, wouldn't even, they couldn't even stay awake with him. But in the midst of that, Jesus comes to these as their comforter. Don't let your hearts be troubled. 
believe, trust what's about to happen here. And he makes this audacious claim to Thomas. How can we know the way? We don't know where you're going. Jesus says, well, I am the way. And the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And so Jesus says really explicitly here that he is the way. Now, in the context here, we see the difference between Jew and Greek throughout the New Testament. And we see in in that some of the difference between Eastern thought and Western thought. So you have, in Eastern thought, it wouldn't have been that surprising to hear someone say that they were a way to God or a way to enlightenment. This is still true in Eastern religions today, that somebody can claim that I am a pathway to a greater understanding of divinity. On the other hand, in Greek and Roman culture, people would have accepted the claim to deity, to, that people were considered themselves gods, emperors considered themselves gods, major leaders did, people within temples considered themselves messengers from the pantheon of gods. That's what led uh, Paul, when he was in Athens in Acts 17, to later on like, look around and say, like, well, you guys are really religious. There's altars to everybody, and there were altars to emperors and temples to emperors and, and a, a, a whole slew of gods. And that's when he says, well, you have one to an unknown god, let me tell you about him. But even in those contexts, no Jewish person ever would have claimed to be God. That's blasphemy. You would be stoned. But John begins with that claim about Jesus back in chapter 1. Jesus makes that claim at several points on the way through that we've seen when he says, hey, the Father's given it to me to judge, so you're going to stand in front of me in the end. And then here he's saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You come to me and you come to the Father. And no Greek or Roman would have claimed that there's only one way. And, and so Jesus could not be clearer on this, that he is the only way that you can come to God. And so this is where we see the reality that the claims of Jesus, the invitation of Jesus, and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most inclusive offer that's ever been made. Anybody can come to Christ in faith and repentance and be brought into the family of God and saved, forgiven our sins, be on the path to life eternal. Anybody. The things that divide us are shattered by the cross. The dividing walls of hostility, whether it's, whether it's racial and cultural divides or male and female divides or economics and class divides or whether it's, it's regional divides and they're living in different parts of the world. Jesus says, all people are called and can come to me. There's room in my Father's house. But it's also an exclusive claim that Jesus is saying, I am the one true God incarnate. This is the way, the truth, and the life. Not just a way to get there. Today, it's the same. You see, nobody's mad at the time. Nobody was upset about the good things that Jesus did in general. Some of the Pharisees got upset that he healed people, but that was because it was on the Sabbath. But when we look back, generally people are, are good with the fact that Jesus healed people, he cared for the poor, he... He lifted up people who were outcasts. He taught some good things about morals. He confronted abusive power structures. He lifted up women. He reached across racial divides that no one else would. And all of those things that are things that we can celebrate and our world can celebrate easily and say these are good things that Jesus did. And churches ought to do, be involved in these things too, and modeling and following Jesus' example as well. And churches will be celebrated for doing these good things. 
But then it comes to claims that Jesus makes like this. The exclusive claims of Jesus to be God and to be the way to God were just as offensive in the first century as they are to people's modern sensibilities now. We, we're no different than people in the first century. We have a chronological snobbery, as C.S. Lewis calls it, that we think we are far more sophisticated, far more advanced, but, but the reality is we are no different, and every one of us would rather shape our own way and live our own truth and be responsible to get the credit for our own life. As we read this, though, Jesus is saying, no, I am the way, the truth, and life. And I think this could be read, too, semantically, that, that the way, he is the way to the Father is, is the overriding idea, so he is the way of truth and life, or he is the, tr the true and living way to God. And so the main question Thomas asks and that Jesus answered is about the way to God, and Jesus is the way to God because he is the truth, and because he, in, in that he embodies the supreme revelation of God, and so he is the truth, and he is the way to God because he is the life, he is the source and the sustainer of life, the bread of life on which we can be nourished. And so as Thomas Akempis said, without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow, the truth with which thou must believe, the life for which thou must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth, life true, life blessed, and life uncreated. So Jesus is the way. As, as he says this, though, Philip responds. He says, if you would, from now on you do know the Father, you've seen the Father. And Philip goes, uh, Lord, can you show us the Father? This goes to our fourth truth tonight, is that following Jesus begins with belief and trust. And Philip goes on to really ask for signs, He's, uh, for, an, for a miracle, like show us the Father and that'll be enough for us, Jesus. Just show us the Father. And it, it, it kind of sounds like, like Moses on Sinai when he said to God, like, hey, when God is like, Moses, I'm going to wipe out these people because of that whole golden calf thing. I'm going to start over with you. And Moses says, no, 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 no. You, you promised this. You brought us all out of Egypt. And, and you know, we, we're not going to go unless your presence goes with us. And, and then God says, all right, I'll go with you. And Moses takes it a step further. He's like, all right, now show me your glory. And God's like, hold on, Moses. You, you can't see my glory and live. But, but you can see my goodness. And the trailing edge of my goodness. So here Thomas, or Philip, similarly is saying, like, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. And Jesus' response to him here is important. You know, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? And the words that I say to you, I speak not of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Or at least believe in the works that you've seen already. See, Jesus is saying here, and we've seen this all the way through John, that people demand signs. People wanted miracles the whole way through. And even as Jesus did these things, these miraculous things, it still wasn't enough. And it's still true for us that, that if our faith becomes based more on the miraculous than on the miracle worker, then we will never be satisfied. We will always need more confirmation 
And because our re- relationship with God becomes not one of belief and trust, we're not putting ourselves into Jesus's hands and into God's hands and saying, wherever my path goes, I trust you because I trust where this is going to end up. Instead, we end up with a transactional relationship with God. Like, I'll do these things, Lord, but here's what I expect you to do in my life. If you're not doing, if I'm not seeing these things that God is doing in my life, then why am I doing this stuff? And so we get stuck in this transactional approach that Jesus is trying to undercut here. As Leslie Newbigin said, a belief which requires signs and wonders is one which lays down in advance the conditions which are required to authenticate any alleged revelation of God. It is thus guilty of putting the constructions of the human imagination, often a very pious imagination, in the place of God himself. The belief is not in a response to God as he actually reveals himself. What this means is, many of us look at our relationship with God as a contract we're waiting to sign. Let me make sure that the terms and conditions are correct first, and then I'll sign on. But the real question in our lives is, are we going to turn to Jesus, deny ourselves, and follow him? Or are we going to keep asking Jesus to prove himself to satisfy us? Well, following Jesus begins with belief and trust. When he says, believe in God, believe also in me. Meanwhile, everything in our world is screaming at you that you can't believe and trust in something outside yourself. That denying yourself is, or any of your desires is the greatest weakness you could have, and so we want to set the terms. This invades our approach to Christian spirituality, too. We become what Dallas Willard called vampire Christians. This is a, it's a great term. Dallas Willard said that we act like this. I'd like a little of your blood, please, Jesus. But I don't care to be your student or have your character. In fact, won't you just excuse me while I get on with my life, and I'll see you in heaven. Already the disciples had seen some major signs. They saw Jesus turn water into wine. They they saw him heal the the royal official's son. He healed the the paralyzed man who had been paralyzed for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda. He fed 5,000. He walked on water. He healed a man who was blind from birth. And he had, by the way, just raised Lazarus from the dead last week in the context of this passage. It's not like that was even far away. Jesus pled with his disciples to trust him, to believe him. But that's not just, just trust me. It's a plea that, to believe that all that he said and all that he is is true. And, and that if the, if the words that the disciples are hearing are themselves confusing, if they're still not getting it, then he is saying to Philip here, like, Philip, like, you've been hearing from me. Will you just trust me that I'm preparing a good place for you and that I'm going to bring you with me when I get there? But, but if, if, if that's not enough, like, can you at least believe in the works that you've seen? Like, the raising of Lazarus was a precursor to Jesus' resurrection. And so for us, it's the same. Jesus says, all right, do you believe me? Will you trust me? Trust me enough to to entrust your life to me. Will we begin that journey with him in belief and trust, knowing it'll be costly? And we have plenty of evidence of God's work, primarily and especially in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the way for us. And listen, it's not always clear to us where paths should go. Again, some of you right now aren't sure if you're on the path that you ought to be on or if you have, like I did with my family, led, people, led your own life off into some high grasses and you're looking around you and seeing other paths far below that you wonder if that's where you ought to be. 
But we're always wondering about choices, again, in school or jobs or what city we're going to live in and, and relationships that we have. And it can be paralyzing as we try to figure out what God's will is. The primary call, though, if you want to know God's will, Jesus' primary call to you is not fixated on one job or one place or one school or one relationship. You're not going to mess up or undo God's sovereignty. The primary concern that God has is your heart. The call that Jesus has is on you is the same as his disciples. He said, follow me. Lay down your life to follow me. Believe, trust in God, trust in me. There are going to be times when you don't. There's going to be times like Peter when you don't follow Jesus and, and, and you, you know that it's happening and you feel like you can't stop yourself. Like, there'll be times like Thomas when you just don't understand what God is doing and you feel like you're just hitting your head against a wall going like, this doesn't make any sense. Or like Philip, there'll be times when you will be blind to God's work and looking for more evidence. But thank God that Jesus is the true and living way. So the question for every one of us is, today, will you follow him? Will you trust God? Will you trust Christ? You, don't, you will not come to the Father except through him. And if you are a Christian who is, is actively following Jesus, what would your life look like if your trust in Christ, if your trust in God with your life and with your path, was the defining characteristic for you? What might be different if you really trusted God and trusted Jesus as you follow him? Let's pray. Father, this is hard because we like to be in control of our own paths. It's hard to give up. It's hard to, to be able to trust anyone. We, every one of us in here has experienced betrayal and experienced people letting us down, and so it's, it's difficult because our hearts become tired and we get self-protective. So I pray today that you would give us the freedom, the boldness to lay down our guard, to open our hearts, and to take the risk to trust you and entrust ourselves to you. Lord, we thank you that Jesus came and that he is the way and the truth and the life, that he is the true and living way, because we're not, none of us is doing that great trying to figure this out on our own. And so we're thankful that you have made a way for us. We pray tonight, Lord, I pray tonight that those who are wrestling with who Jesus is and whether it's worth it, that you would move by your spirit to bring an assurance and freedom. And so we thank you for what you've given us and what you call us to. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.